Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. And my neighbors had all week to mow the grass, but they decided to wait until I started recording. I mean, how insensitive, right? Anyway, I am back in the saddle today. Two episodes in two weeks. It must be some kind of record of recent weeks, but we are in the Burr months now and such things are necessary. You might also hear in the background my dog, Pumpkin. She's pacing around and trying to figure out what it is exactly that I am doing, talking to myself. Well, I've always talked to myself, but it seems less weird when you do it with a microphone in front of you. In any case, let's get to our episode. I've got a really cozy Christmas story uh, in store for you and a couple of other little things to share along the way. So let's get to the book corner first. I received a new book that I wanted to review, and the book is called Murder on Mistletoe Lane by Clara McKenna. Kensington Publisher sent me the book in exchange for an honest review, and uh, the book is about, quote, the American heiress, heiress Stella Kendrick and her husband, British aristocrat Viscount Lindy Lindhurst prepare to celebrate their first Christmas together as newlyweds in Clara McKenna's latest historical mystery set in England's New Forest region at the turn of the 20th century. Maligned housekeeper Mrs. Nelson becomes seriously ill, only to be found dead in the cold on Mistletoe Lane. Now, this is book five in the series, and I have not read them myself yet, Uh, I hadn't even heard of them before. I was looking forward to reading it. And even though it was book five, uh, the author, she does a great job at keeping you up to date with what's going on. You know, the story itself feels like a, for the most part, a standalone that you could read without having read the others. But I I enjoyed this book enough. I want to go back and read the series starting with book one, because there were a few parts that I felt a little off about, uh, and and those are parts that you know either refer to previous adventures or characters. I, I wasn't sure, you know, is this an ongoing character in the other books or is this a new character for this book? And so some of that was distracting, but that's more to do with uh, me than you know than the writer. But uh, the main characters are Stella Kendrick. Uh, she's uh, again an heiress from Kentucky. And I don't know why or how she ended up in Britain, but I was able to piece together some of her story. It sounds like her father wanted to arrange a marriage uh, and sent her to England, Uh, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, in this book, we find her married uh, and have just been newly married. And then uh, she is a, a very spunky, intelligent, and delightful character that I really enjoyed reading about. And then uh, Lindy, her new husband and future heir of Morrington Hall. Uh, He's a little bit hot-headed for my taste, but uh, Stella does have a calming effect on him. And to be fair, some of the things he gets angry about involve her and her safety. And so I can see that, that happening. But I liked that through most of the book, he was a companion with her. You know, that they solved the mystery together. They investigated together. And of course, there's the uh, usual cast of characters that you find in in uh, fancy halls like that. I um, I very often thought about uh, Downton Abbey, so that that kind of a, a vibe. 
So the mystery itself is an interesting one. That their housekeeper, Mrs. Nelson, uh, seems to have been poisoned, but then she gets a little bit better. But then the next day she's found dead in in the middle of the road. Uh, this story takes place just after the turn of the century of 1900s. So motor cars are, are just becoming a thing in that area, as, as well as uh, the story talks about how some of these new improvements have come into uh, Morrington Hall. Not everybody uh, there appreciates the change that um, Stella is bringing. And then, um, and then along the way through the book, as many mysteries will have, there's another character who dies. And this is something I learned from Agatha Christie's Poirot Mysteries. I can't remember which book, but in one of the stories, he said that uh, something along the lines of that the murderer who kills once will often kill again if he feels threatened, if his secret is at risk to be uh, unveiled. And sometimes, unfortunately, you get a better idea of who the murderer is based on who they kill next. Although in the case of this book, you'll get no spoilers out of me. The book has equal parts humor and tragedy in it with a really heartwarming Christmas element to it. And I like that once the mystery is revealed, uh, I, I, for, for me, I think all of the both red herrings and, and actual clues made sense. You know, there was this, the, the murder and the different things that went on. I, I couldn't get them to connect. Like, how, how is this all connected? But then when it, the story is revealed... It's like a light bulb coming on. So it was very well done in that case. Um, so running throughout the story, as I mentioned, is a wonderful sprinkling of Christmas celebrating and traditions. Uh, things like carol sings, Christmas trees, and lots of food. Um, so the, it's high on Christmas spirit. There are uh, gift exchanges and all, all that that you come to expect in a Christmas story. Now, I would not classify this as a cozy mystery. Uh, but I, it felt more like a traditional mystery, uh, kind of like a mix between an Agatha Christie and Downton Abbey, as I mentioned before. In fact, at times it, it felt so much like Downton Abbey that I kept imagining the actors from the series playing their respective parts in the book. For me, that's not a criticism because I really enjoyed Downton Abbey and I was delighted to find a series that could you know, fill that niche now that, uh, you know, Downton Abbey's been off the air for a few years. So overall, the, the vibes were very enjoyable for this book. And like I mentioned, I'm going to go back and start reading with book one and put the series on my TBR list uh, as I really enjoyed uh, the, uh, the adventure. Um, so again, the book is called Murder on Mistletoe Lane by Clara McKenna. And it comes out on October 24th, 2023. Well, for our story today, I'm going to be reading Christmas Storms and Sunshine by Elizabeth Gaskell. Elizabeth Gaskell was born on September 29th, 1810, and she died on November 12th, 1865. And according to Wikipedia, it says that she was, she's often referred to as Mrs. Gaskell. She was an English novelist, biographer, and short story writer. Her novels offer a detailed portrait of the lives of many strata of Victorian society, including the very poor. 
she has written novels such as Mary Barton, Cranford, North and South, and Wives and Daughters. She also published the first biography of Charlotte Bronte, who, with whom she was friends until her passing. Now, I really enjoy Elizabeth Gaskell's writings. She's probably my second favorite Victorian writer, with Dickens being my top favorite. I have read most of her books and a lot of her short stories. Uh, I really recommend if you want to enjoy some spooky ghost stories or scary stories, check out some of her short fiction. She's very good at writing those, as well as um, one novella uh, she wrote called The Grey Woman. It was just brilliant gothic storytelling at its at its finest and, and very um, progressively feminist too, which might surprise you. Now, most people, when we think of Victorian writers and Christmas, our minds immediately go to Charles Dickens. Uh, that, as some have called him, the man who invented Christmas. Now, uh, if you know me well enough, you know that I don't think he invented Christmas, but Dickens certainly had a strong influence on it. There is a very interesting article on the Gaskell Society website written by uh, Dr. Diane Duffy, who I had a chance to interview on my book podcast uh, about Elizabeth Gaskell. And she wrote an article called Christmas with the Gaskells. It was published on November 29th, uh, 2020. And I wanted to read just a couple of selections from that um, that I, I found interesting. It said, so uh, Elizabeth Gaskell and her husband were Unitarians. Duffy writes in her article that despite the fact that Unitarians did not recognize the divinity of Christ, Christmas as a time of peace, love, and family unity was still special for the Gaskell household. On the 23rd of December, 1841, she writes to Anne Robson, William's sister, that's, that's her husband, Christmas Day, it has been a sort of long promise that we all should spend at the Bradfords. By all, I mean William, myself, two children, and Elizabeth, and all stop all night. Elizabeth Gaskell seems to have loved gathering friends and family together at Christmas. In 1850, she is away from home, staying at Broughton House near Worcester, and is miserable at the thought of being away from Man Manchester and her family over the Christmas period. It says that Turkey seemed to have been a favorite with the Gaskell family as Christmas fair. I've been reading some of Elizabeth Gaskell's letters. I have a book of all of them that have survived. Uh, it's like a thousand pages long. And she was a delightful letter writer. And I've been finding in the letters um, sprinkled throughout, if she finds a clever riddle, she will uh, write it in uh, to whoever she's writing to. In the Gaskell Society uh, article, Duffy writes about a Christmas joke that uh, was a rather politically charged one. It says, in a letter to Eliza Fox dated April 1850, she again mentions Turkey, this time in a rather politically charged Christmas joke. One of many she cites with a comment that they are not bad enough to be good. And the riddle is this, why is the emperor of Russia like a beggar at Christmas? Because he's confounded Hungary and wants a slice of Turkey. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I also learned from this article that Elizabeth Gaskell exchanged Christmas gifts at one time with Charlotte Bronte. Uh, again, 
Charlotte Brontes, the author of uh, one of the best Victorian novels uh, around, such as Jane Eyre. And the article says that Gaskell gave Bronte a copy of The Moorland Cottage and received in return a second edition of Wuthering Heights, which is uh, the novel that Emily Bronte, her Charlotte's sister, wrote. And I don't know about you, but if I, I might have to return that gift. Um, <laughs> not a big fan of Wuthering Heights, but uh, it's the thought that counts, I suppose. All right. I, I found the article to be absolutely fascinating. You know, even though the Gaskells might have been a family that did not believe in the divinity of Christ, they still found something to celebrate in Christmas. And I think that truly can be said of all of us. And so with that, I invite you to settle in here by the Christmas fire. And I'll read to you today, Christmas Storms and Sunshine by Elizabeth Gaskell. In the town of blank, no matter where, there circulated two local newspapers, no matter when. Now, the Flying Post was long established and respectable, alias bigoted and Tory. The Examiner was spirited and intelligent, alias newfangled and democratic. Every week, these newspapers contained articles abusing each other, as cross and peppery as articles could be, and evidently the production of irritated minds, although they seem to have one stereotyped commencement. Though the article appearing in last week's post, or examiner, is below contempt, yet we have been induced, etc., etc. And every Saturday the radical shopkeepers shook hands together and agreed that the post was done for by the slashing clever examiner, while the more dignified Tories began by regretting that Johnson should think that low paper, only read by a few of the vulgar, worth wasting his wit upon. However, the examiner was at its last gasp. It was not, though. It lived and flourished. At least it paid its way, as one of the heroes of my story could tell. He was chief compositor, or whatever title may be given to the head man of the mechanical part of a newspaper. He hardly confined himself to that department. Once or twice, unknown to the editor, when the manuscript had fallen short, he had filled up the vacant space by compositions of his own. Announcements of a forthcoming crop of green peas in December, a gray thrush having been seen, or a white hare, or such interesting phenomena, invented for the occasion, I must confess, but what of that? His wife always knew when to expect a little specimen of her husband's literary talent by a peculiar cough, which served as prelude, and judging from this encouraging sign, in the high-pitched and emphatic voice in which he read them, she was inclined to think that an ode to an early rosebud, in the corner devoted to original poetry, and a letter in the correspondence department signed Pro Bono Publico, were her husband's writing, and to hold up her head accordingly. I never could find out what it was that occasioned the Hodgsons to lodge in the same house as the Jenkinses. Jenkins held the same office in the Tory paper, as Hodgson did in the Examiner, and, as I said before, I leave you to give it a name. But Jenkins had a proper sense of his position and a proper reverence for all in authority, from the king down to the editor and sub-editor. He would as soon have thought of borrowing the king's crown for a nightcap, or the king's scepter for a walking stick, as he would have thought of filling up any spare corner with any production of his own and I think it would have even added to his contempt of Hodgson 
if that were possible, had he known of the productions of his brain, as the latter fondly alluded to the paragraphs he inserted when speaking to his wife. Jenkins had his wife, too. Wives were wanting to finish the completeness of the quarrel, which existed one memorable Christmas week some dozen years ago, between the two neighbors, the two compositors. And with wives, it was a very pretty, a very complete quarrel. To make the opposing parties still more equal, still more well-matched, if the Hodgsons had a baby, such a baby, a poor puny little thing, Mrs. Jenkins had a cat. Such a cat, a great nasty meowling tomcat, that was always stealing the milk put by for a little angel's supper. And now, having matched Greek with Greek, I must proceed to the tug of war. It was the day before Christmas. Such a cold east wind, such an inky sky, such a blue-black look in people's faces as they were driven out more than usual to complete their purchases for the next day's festival. Before leaving home that morning, Jenkins had given some money to his wife to buy the next day's dinner. My dear, I wish for turkey and sausages. It may be a weakness, but I own I am partial to sausages. My deceased mother was. Such tastes are hereditary. As to the sweets, whether plum pudding or mince pies, I leave such considerations to you. I only beg you not to mind expense. Christmas comes but once a year. And again he had called out from the bottom of the first flight of stairs, just close to the Hodgson's door. Ugh, such ostentatiousness, as Mrs. Hodgson observed. You will not forget the sausages, my dear. I should have liked to have had something above common, Mary, said Hodgson, as they too made their plans for the next day. But I think roast beef must do for us. You see, love, we've a family. Only one, Jem. I don't want more than roast beef, though, I'm sure. Before I went to service, mother and mother and me would have thought that roast beef a very fine dinner. Well, let's settle it then. Roast beef and a plum pudding. And now, goodbye. Mind and take care of little Tom. I thought he was a bit hoarse this morning. And off he went to his work. Now it was a good while since Mrs. Jenkins and Mrs. Hodgson had spoken to each other although they were quite as much in possession of the knowledge of events and opinions as though they did. Mary knew that Mrs. Jenkins despised her for not having a real lace cap, which Mrs. Jenkins had, and for having been a servant, which Mrs. Jenkins had not, and the little occasional pinchings which the Hodgsons were obliged to resort to to make both ends meet would have been very patiently endured by Mary if she had not winced under Mrs. Jenkins's knowledge of such economy. But she had her revenge. She had a child, and Mrs. Jenkins had none. To have had a child, even such a puny babe as little Tom, Mrs. Jenkins would have worn commonest caps and cleaned grates and drudged her fingers to the bone. The great unspoken disappointment of her life soured her temper and turned her thoughts inward, and made her morbid and selfish. Hang that cat, he's been stealing again. He's gnawed the cold mutton in his nasty mouth till it's not fit to set before a Christian, and I've nothing else for Jem's dinner. But I'll give it him now I've caught him, that I will. So saying, Mary Hodgson caught up her husband's Sunday cane, 
And despite Pussy's cries and scratches, she gave him such a beating as she hoped might cure him of his thievish propensities. When lo and behold, Mrs. Jenkins stood at the door with a face of bitter wrath. Aren't you ashamed of yourself, ma'am, to abuse a poor dumb animal, ma'am, as knows no better than to take food when he sees it, ma'am? He only follows the nature which God has given, ma'am, and it's a pity your nature, ma'am, which I've heard is of the stingy saving species, does not make you shut your cupboard door a little closer. There is such a thing as law for brute animals. I'll ask Mr. Jenkins, but I don't think them radicals has done away with that law yet. For all their reform bill, ma'am. Oh, my poor precious love of a Tommy, is he hurt? And is his leg broke for taking a mouthful of scraps, as most people would give away to a beggar, if he'd take him? wound up Mrs. Jenkins, casting a contemptuous look on the remnant of a scrag end of mutton. Mary felt very angry and very guilty, for she really pitied the poor limping animal as he crept up to his mistress and there lay down to bemoan himself. She wished she had not beaten him so hard, for it certainly was her own careless way of never shutting the cupboard door that had tempted him to his fault but the sneer at her little bit of mutton turned her penitence to fresh wrath, and she shut the door in Mrs. Jenkins' face as she stood caressing her cat in the lobby with such a bang that it wakened little Tom, and he began to cry. Everything was to go wrong with Mary today. Now Baby was awake. Who was to take her husband's dinner to the office? She took the child in her arms and tried to hush him off to sleep again, and as she sung, she cried. She could hardly tell why. A sort of reaction from her violent, angry feelings. She wondered if his leg was really broken. What would her mother say if she knew how cross and cruel her little Mary was getting? If she should live to beat her child in one of her angry fits? It was of no use lullabying while she sobbed so. It must be given up, and she must just carry her baby in her arms and take him with her to the office for it was long past dinner time. So she pared the mutton carefully, although by so doing she reduced the meat to an infinitesimal quantity. And taking the baked potatoes out of the oven, she popped them piping hot into her basket with the etceteras of plate, butter, salt, and knife and fork. It was indeed a bitter wind. She bent against it as she ran, and the flakes of snow were sharp and cutting as ice. Baby cried all the way, though she cuddled him up in her shawl. Then her husband had made his appetite up for a potato pie, and, literary man as he was, his body got so much the better of his mind that he looked rather black at the cold mutton. Mary had no appetite for her own dinner when she arrived at home again, so after she had tried to feed baby, and he had fretfully refused to take his bread and milk, she laid him down as usual on his quilt, surrounded by playthings, while she sighted away and chopped suet for the next day's pudding. Early in the afternoon a parcel came, done up first in brown paper, then in such a white, grass-bleached, sweet-smelling towel, and a note from her dear, dear mother, in which quaint writing she endeavored to tell her daughter that she had not forgotten at Christmas time, but that, learning that Farmer Burton was killing his pig, she had made interest for some of his famous pork out of which she had manufactured some sausages and flavored them just as Mary used to like when she lived at home. 
Dear, dear mother, said Mary to herself, there never was any one like her for remembering other folk. What rare sausages she used to make. Home things have a smack with them. No bought things can ever have. Set them up with their sausages. I have a notion if Mrs. Jenkins had ever tasted mother's, she'd have no fancy for them town-made things Fanny took in just now. And so she went on thinking about home, till the smiles and the dimples came out again at the remembrance of that pretty cottage, which would look green even now in the depth of winter, with its pyracanthus and its holly bushes, and the great Portugal laurel that was her mother's pride, and the back path through the orchard to Farmer Burton's, how well she remembered it, the bushels of unripe apples she had picked up there and distributed among his pigs till he had scolded her for giving them so much green trash. She was interrupted. Her baby, I call him a baby because his father and mother did, and because he was so little of his age, but I rather think he was eighteen months old, had fallen asleep some time before among his playthings, an uneasy, restless sleep, but of which Mary had been thankful, as his morning's nap had been too short, and as she was so busy. But now he began to make such a strange crowing noise, just like a chair drawn heavily and gratingly along a kitchen floor. His eyes were open, but expressive of nothing but pain. "'Mother's darling!' said Mary, in terror, lifting him up. "'Baby, try not to make that noise. Hush, hush, darling, what hurts him?' But the noise came worse and worse. "'Fanny! Fanny!' Mary called in mortal fright, for her baby was almost black with his gasping breath, and she had no one to ask for aid or sympathy but her landlady's daughter, a little girl of twelve or thirteen, who attended to the house in her mother's absence, as daily cook in gentlemen's families. Fanny was more especially considered the attendant of the upstairs lodgers, who paid for the use of the kitchen, for Jenkins cannot abide the smell of meat-cooking. But just now she was fortunately sitting at her afternoon's work of darning stockings, and hearing Mrs. Hodgson's cry of terror, she ran to her sitting-room and understood the case at a glance. Oh, he's got the croup. Oh, Mrs. Hodgson, he'll die as sure as fate. Little brother had it, and he died in no time. The doctor said he could do nothing for him. It had gone too far. He said if we'd put him in a warm bath at first, it might have saved him. But, bless you, he was never half so bad as your baby. Unconsciously, there mingled in her statement some of a child's love of producing an effect, but the increasing danger was clear enough. Oh, my baby, my baby, oh, love, love, don't look so ill, I cannot bear it, and my fire so low, there I was, thinking of home and picking currants and never minding the fire. Oh, Fanny, what is the fire like in the kitchen? Speak. Mother told me to screw it up and throw some slack on it as soon as Mrs. Jenkins had done with it, and so I did. It's very low and black, but, oh, Mrs. Hodgson, let me run for the doctor. I cannot bear to hear him. It's so like little brother. Through her streaming tears, Mary motioned her to go. In trembling, sinking, sick at heart, she laid her boy in his cradle and ran to fill her kettle. Mrs. Jenkins, having cooked her husband's snug little dinner, to which he came home, having told him her story of the cat's beating, at which he was justly and dignifiedly indignant, saying it was all of a piece with that abusive examiner, having received the sausages and turkey and mince pies which her husband had ordered, and cleaned up the room and prepared everything for tea, 
and coaxed and duly bemoaned her cat, who had pretty much forgotten his beating, but very much enjoyed the petting. Having done all these and many other things, Mrs. Jenkins sat down to get up the real lace cap. Every thread was pulled out separately and carefully stretched. When? What was that? Outside in the street, a chorus of piping children's voices sang the old carol she had heard a hundred times in the days of her youth. As Joseph was a-walking, he heard an angel sing, This night shall be born our heavenly king. He neither shall be born in housen nor in hall, nor in the place of paradise, but in an ox's stall. He neither shall be clothed in purple nor in pall, but all in fair linen, as were babies all. He neither shall be rocked in silver nor in gold, but in a wooden cradle that rocks on the mold. She got up and went to the window. There below stood the group of gray-black little figures relieved against the snow, which now enveloped everything. For old sake's sake, as she phrased it, she counted out a halfpenny apiece for the singers out of the copper bag and threw them down below. The room had become chilly while she had been counting out and throwing down her money, so she stirred her already glowing fire and sat down right before it, but not to stretch her lace. Like Mary Hodgson, she began to think over long past days on softening remembrances of the dead and gone, on words long forgotten, on holy stories heard at her mother's knee. I cannot think what's come over me tonight, said she, half aloud, recovering herself by the sound of her own voice from her train of thought. My head goes wandering on them old times. I'm sure more texts have come into my head with thinking on my mother within this last half hour than I've thought on for years and years. I hope I'm not going to die. Folks say, thinking too much on the dead, but tokens were going to join them. I should be loath to go just yet. Such a fine turkey as we've got for dinner tomorrow, too. Knock, knock, knock at the door, as fast as Knuckles could go. And then, as if the comer could not wait, the door was opened, and Mary Hodgson stood there as white as death. Mrs. Jenkins, oh, your kettle is boiling. Thank God. Let me have the water for my baby, for the love of God. He's got croup and is dying. Mrs. Jenkins turned on her chair with a wooden, inflexible look on her face. That between ourselves, her husband knew and dreaded for all his pompous dignity. I'm sorry I can't oblige you, ma'am. My kettle is wanted for my husband's tea. Don't be afeard, Tommy. Mrs. Hodgson's won't venture to intrude herself where she's not desired. You'd better send for the doctor, ma'am, instead of wasting your time and wringing your hands, ma'am. My kettle is engaged. Mary clasped her hands together with passionate force, but spoke no word of entreaty to that wooden face that sharp, determined voice. But, as she turned away, she prayed for strength to bear the coming trial, and strength to forgive Mrs. Jenkins. Mrs. Jenkins watched her go away meekly, as one who has no hope, and then she turned upon herself as sharply as she ever did on anyone else. What a brute I am! Lord, forgive me! What's my husband's tea to a baby's life? In croup, too, where time is everything, you crabbed old vixen, you. Anyone may know you never had a child. She was downstairs, kettle in hand, before she had finished her self-upbraiding, and when in Mrs. Hodgson's room she rejected all thanks, Mary had not the voice for many words, saying stiffly, 
I do it for the poor baby's sake, ma'am, hoping he may live to have mercy to poor dumb beasts if he does forget to lock his cupboards. But she did everything and more than Mary with her young inexperience could have thought of. She prepared the warm bath and tried it with her husband's own thermometer. Mr. Jenkins was as punctual as clockwork in noting down the temperature of every day. She let his mother place her baby in the tub, still preserving the same rigid affronted aspect, and then she went upstairs without a word. Mary longed to ask her to stay, but dared not, though when she left the room the tears chased each other down her cheeks faster than ever. Poor young mother, how she counted the minutes till the doctor should come. But before he came, down again stalked Mrs. Jenkins with something in her hand. I've, I've seen many of these croup fits, which, I take it, you've not, ma'am. Mustard plasters is very sovereign, but on the throat... I've been up and made one, ma'am, and, by your leave, I'll put it on the poor little fellow. Mary could not speak, but she signed her grateful assent. It began to smart while they still kept silence, and he looked up to his mother as if seeking courage from her looks to bear the stinging pain. But she was softly crying to see him suffer, and her want of courage reacted upon him, and he began to sob aloud. Instantly, Mrs. Jenkins's apron was up, hiding her face. Peepo, baby, said she as merrily as she could. His little face brightened, and his mother, having once got the cue, the two women kept the little fellow amused until his plaster had taken effect. He's better. Oh, Mrs. Jenkins, look at his eyes, how different, and he breathes quite softly. As Mary spoke thus, the doctor entered. He examined his patient. Baby was really better. It has been a sharp attack, but the remedies you have applied have been worth all the pharmacopoeia an hour later. I shall send the powder, and so on and so on. Mrs. Jenkins stayed to hear this opinion, and, her heart wonderfully more easy, was going to leave the room when Mary seized her hand and kissed it. She could not speak her gratitude. Mrs. Jenkins looked affronted and awkward, and as if she must go upstairs and wash her hand directly. But in spite of these sour looks, she came softly down an hour or so afterwards to see how Baby was. The little gentleman slept well after the fright he had given his friends, and on Christmas morning, when Mary awoke and looked at the sweet little pale face lying on her arm, she could hardly realize the danger he had been in. When she came down, later than usual, she found the household in commotion. What do you think had happened? Why, the cat had been a traitor to his best friend and eaten up some of Mr. Jenkinson's own especial sausages and gnawed and tumbled the rest so that they were not fit to be eaten. There were no bounds to that cat's appetite. He would have eaten his own father if he had been tender enough. And now Mrs. Jenkins stormed and cried, Hang the cat! Christmas Day, too, and all the shops shut. What was turkey without sausages? gruffly asked Mr. Jenkins. Oh, Jim, whispered Mary, hearken what a piece of work he's making about sausages. I should like to take Mrs. Jenkins up some of Mother's. They're twice as good as bought sausages. I, I see no objection, my dear. Sausages do not involve intimacies, else his politics are what I can no ways respect. But, oh, Jim, if you had seen her last night about baby, I'm sure she may scold me forever and I'll not answer. I'd even make her cat welcome to the sausages. The tears gathered to Mary's eyes as she kissed her boy. Better take them upstairs, my dear, 
and give them to the cat's mistress. And Jem chuckled at his saying. Mary put them on a plate, but still she loitered. What must I say, Jem? I, I never know. Say, I hope you'll accept of these sausages as my mother. Uh, no, that's not grammar. Uh, say what comes uppermost, Mary. It will be sure to be right. So Mary carried them upstairs and knocked at the door, and when told to come in, she looked very red, but went up to Mrs. Jenkins, saying, Please take these. Mother, mother made them, and was away before an answer could be given. Just as Hodgson was ready to go to church, Mrs. Jenkins came downstairs and called Fanny. In a minute, the latter entered the Hodgson's room and delivered Mr. and Mrs. Jenkins' compliments, and they would be particular glad if Mr. and Mrs. Hodgson would eat their dinner with them. And carry baby upstairs in a shawl, be sure, added Mrs. Jenkins' voice in the passage, close to the door, whither she had followed her messenger. There was no discussing the matter with the certainty of every word being overheard. Mary looked anxiously at her husband. She remembered his saying he did not approve of Mr. Jenkins' politics. "'Do you think it would do for Baby?' asked he. "'Oh, yes,' answered she, eagerly. "'I would wrap him up so warm. "'And I've got our room up to sixty-five already, for all it's so frosty,' added the voice outside. "'Now, how do you think they settled the matter?' "'The very best way in the world.' Mr. and Mrs. Jenkins came down into the Hodgson's room and dined there. Turkey at the top, roast beef at the bottom, sausages at one side and potatoes on the other. Second course, plum pudding at the top and mince pies at the bottom. And after dinner, Mrs. Jenkins would have baby on her knee, and he seemed quite to take to her. She declared he was admiring the real lace on her cap, but Mary thought, though she did not say so, that he was pleased by her kind looks and coaxing words. Then he was wrapped up and carried carefully upstairs to tea in Mrs. Jenkins' room, and after tea Mrs. Jenkins and Mary and her husband found out each other's mutual liking for music and sat singing old glees and catches till I don't know what o'clock without one word of politics or newspapers. Before they parted, Mary had coaxed the cat onto her knee, for Mrs. Jenkins would not part with baby who was sleeping on her lap. When you're busy, bring him to me. Do now, it will be a real favor. I know you must have a deal to do with another coming. Let him come up to me. I'll take the greatest of cares of him. Pretty darling, how sweet he looks when he's asleep. When the couples were once more alone, the husbands unburdened their minds to their wives. Mr. Jenkins said to his, do you know Burgess tried to make me believe Hodgson was such a fool as to put paragraphs into the examiner now and then? But I see he knows his place, and has got too much sense to do any such thing. Hodgson said, Mary love, I almost fancy from Jenkins' way of speaking, so much civiler than I expected. He guesses I wrote that pro bono in the rosebud. At any rate, I've no objection to your naming it, if the subject should come uppermost. I should like him to know I'm a literary man. Well, I've ended my tale. I hope you don't think it too long. But before I go, just let me say one thing. If any of you have any quarrels, or misunderstandings, or coolnesses, or cold shoulders, or shynesses, or tiffs, or miffs, or huffs, with anyone else, just make friends before Christmas. You will be so much merrier if you do. 
I ask it of you for the sake of that old angelic song heard so many years ago by the shepherds keeping watch by night on Bethlehem Heights. The End And that was Christmas Storms and Sunshine by Elizabeth Gaskell. I really enjoyed that story. I love that Christmas is what it is the background to the story of overcoming, you know, difficulties and anger you might have with a neighbor, a friend, a family member, uh, whatever the case might be. Elizabeth Gaskell wants the story to teach you to make friends before Christmas. You know, you've got that dramatic story of of the, the poor young child, you know, sick with with croup and not doing well. And, and you know, it's it was like that was the thing that broke down the wall between them. In the end, they realized that there's really not a lot of difference between the two families and that how much better it would be to be friends than enemies. And I like that, you know, there's in spite of their political differences, their their economic backgrounds, all of that, they're able to come together and to celebrate uh, the greatest holiday ever and become friends after that. And, you know, maybe I've been watching the news too much, but this is sure something that I feel like is missing in our modern, you know, modern culture, modern politics, whatever you want to call it. I'm not going to get into politics, I promise. It's just that we need to learn to put differences aside and see each other as people with value and let that be the basis with which we form our our beliefs and our decisions and our and our interaction with others and as the angels sang so long ago Mrs. Gaskell references there at the end of her story uh, you know peace on earth and goodwill towards men Boy, do we need that today more than ever. Thank you. So thank you for listening today. I'll have another episode out, hopefully, next Monday. And I'm hoping to go to a weekly production schedule for right now. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Life just doesn't slow down. And I know it doesn't for you either. So I hope that I can be a little bit of your weekly Christmas distraction as we count down to the big day. So until next week, If you'd like to help us out, leaving a review or sharing on your social media is one of the best ways to get the word out, and it really does help us out. Uh, If you'd like to become a financial supporter, you can see the links in the show notes, and donations made on ko-fi.com will go to the cost of running the podcast. And if you send me your address, I'll make sure you get a card and sticker or bookmark. As always, let's remember to honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.